The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 210 of The Real Food Real, we have Kirsty Worth back on the show for the second installment of our gut health Q&A. In today's episode, you will learn about parasites, including how to minimize their potential negative impact on your microbiome and how to navigate natural versus conventional treatment models. We also explore oral hygiene, inflammation, the autoimmune diet, and so much more. Hi, Kirsty, and welcome back to the show. Hey, Steph. Thanks so much for having me again. You're very welcome. I always love chatting with you. We've got another round of our Q&As, lots of questions that have come through from our previous episodes and just some of the topics that you and I both explore. So let's dive in with our first question from Dave. Dave Dave would like to know more about the blastocystis bug. He asks, does it occur naturally in our gut? Um, And then we can move on to how to minimize any negative impact that it would have on our health. Mm -hmm. So the, um, as we call it, the blasto, so the blastocystis bug, look, there's an interesting question about does it occur naturally in the gut? I mean, um, natural suggests that it would be more of a commensal, um, you know, bacteria have a commensal role in our body, so moving through our body. And that's certainly not the case with blasto because it is considered a parasite. So it's one of the most common parasites in our gut and, you know, classified as a protozoa. And the fact that it's transmitted by, um, you know, either human stool or animal stool or sewage or poor hygiene and that we find it, um, you know, within our stool and the fact that it's transmitted that way, it, I, I don't feel like we can say that it's naturally occurring in our gut because of the way that it's um, transmitted. So definitely not. So, um, you know, it's, it is one of those 
horrible bugs that um, it will find people that are suppressed. So it'll find and um, it'll and you know set up shop in people's gut if they have got you know immune suppressed or if they have a lack of diversity within their within their gut. So. Uh, and the fact that there's so many species of it within humans and animals, there is actually a high chance of us catching it, especially if we're going to developing countries or third world countries and the fact that there's so many different types of it. Um, we do get it. So I suppose you could say that we see a lot of it, but is it naturally occurring? No, it's something that we um, can catch or you know, it's transmitted to us. And then those cysts can um, certainly bunker down within our gut and cause all sorts of troubles. So, um, you know, with his next question there, I mean, the symptoms of blasto can go right through to uh, inflammatory bowel disease. We can have like that real ac acute sort of gastro. And what concerns me is this concept of co-infection. So, we see that blasto then creates this environment where other dudes can come along. So we can see diantamoeba fragilis. We can see other kinds of worms in there, different types of things like clostridium. And it creates an environment of every other um, bacteria or parasite or worms jumping on board. So, And then you get other um, symptoms, you know, like that pain and bloating and, um, you know, the gas. And then, of course, it affects the brain and causes lots of pain. So it, it is a pathogen in the gut. It is definitely not naturally occurring. And it, um, it can really cause long, long-term issues. And you would see this too, Seth. You know, we, you have people that work with you and they're like, oh, it all started back in, you know, and often it's 15 years earlier or 10 years earlier and it was just from, you know, catching um, the blasto, um, you know, parasite and then all of those symptoms unfolding from there. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like the catalyst for a lot of people for when their health starts to unravel but I also see that I think the normal, that word normal is being perhaps confused with common. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that because it's obviously not commensal, which is the, you know, how we describe the mm. bacteria that do live inside the microbiome or should. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts on the fact mm. that maybe some more so Western practitioners are seeing it so often that that's part of the reason why it's now being assumed to be quote unquote normal. Yeah. So common is definitely not normal. Yeah. So unfortunately, you know, children's behavior and ADHD and, you know, in gut infections and all this stuff is now common, but that doesn't make it normal. And that concerns me so much. I mean, you know, when you look at the stats, you know, Blasto is one of the most common parasites. It's, there's about, it's up to about 50% of the population have it and, you know, in developing countries and a bit less in, um, you know, more developed countries. But the reason why it's becoming common is because of this lack of diversity. So it's, you know, we have this issue and, you know, what we eat and our environment and the stresses and what we're exposed to in our current daily life 
is creating this environment in our gut that is just like an open door to blasto coming in. There's no adversity there to protect us. There's no beautiful stomach acid to protect us. We haven't got a you know robust immune system because we're lacking in those micronutrients for our immune system. So we really are like this perfect walking host for blasto, come on in, set up shop. And so now, because of what's happening in today's sort of environment within our bodies, it is becoming common. But no, it's it's definitely not normal, and and that concerns me because this new normal is depressed immune system and a lack of diversity in our gut, and all of the problems that are associated with that. Yeah, again, I totally agree, and I don't think it's a coincidence that we see this in in 2019 after these generations or these decades of the overprescription of antibiotics. And, you know, obviously now we're really understanding more about the dangers of antibiotic resistance and hopefully that's changing the prescription level. But a lot of people that when you talk to those perfect hosts for parasites, you know, they've got this really long history mm. of antibiotic use. So their, their diversity, of course, was so low, if not non-existent. So there was like, I love your analogy of the house. Like it's like, you know, there was no um, commensal or beneficial bacteria. So all the rooms in the house were empty. So the parasites, the squatter that can come in and take over whatever they like, whenever they please. Yeah. Absolutely. And then everyone else can come and join the party, like mm-hmm. the worms and the giardia and everyone else that um, wants to come along and have a, a little <laughs> set, up, set up house and set up a bed in those rooms. And, and, you know, and this sort of leads on to that next sort of question about some GPs saying, should we treat blasto? Like it's common, it's normal, everyone's got it. So we don't need to treat it. Now, you know, that also concerns me because um, when there's nothing else there to crowd out these um, parasitic infections, there is no defences left. And so now we do have to use beautiful herbs and um, beautiful food and, you know, probiotics and fermented foods. We have to treat it because people aren't robust and they don't have the diversity that they did previously so you know 100 years ago if someone got blasto a doctor wouldn't well they wouldn't prescribe antibiotics back then anyway but they wouldn't see the need for it because that person's body when they came into the world they came in with diversity they hung out in the dirt they were exposed to so many um beautiful ways of growing a robust gut microbiome from the start and we just don't have that now so we do have to treat it because now it's becoming such a having such a significant impact on our gut. But um, how we treat that is, you know, definitely up for consideration, <laughs> and lots and lots of um, you, you know questions around that because obviously what got us here is antibiotic use, and so it doesn't make sense to hit your head against the same wall. We've got to go and have a look at okay, well this is what got us here. These are the reasons why we have no diversity because we're using these triple therapy um, antibiotics to try and regain this balance in the gut microbiome and it's not working. When we know that um, in the literature there's some incredible studies about garlic being as effective 
as triple therapy antibiotics at treating blasto or Saccharomyces boulardii, for example, being as effective. And they obviously support the body. Saccharomyces boulardii is a, a, you know, a probiotic that supports the body and has incredible impacts on all different aspects of the body, not just treating blasto. And, of course, garlic, holy smokes, it's a prebiotic, it's a um, precursor to glutathione, like a major antioxidant in our body. And so these things that we can use have far-reaching impacts rather than just bombing it like an antibiotic could. So we've got to, we've got to move and shift with what's happening now as opposed to how it used to be treated and what we used to do because we're not the same people and our environment's not the same. So we've got to keep up with how we look at how we best treat and how we best recover from these conditions. Yeah, definitely times have changed and I think also you know, what, you, what you're considering is, you know, a, a natural approach and how we can mitigate the damage from the more typical treatment of antibiotics. And, you know, what I find quite mind-blowing, especially when we look at blasto, the, um, the first line of treatment, the metrodiazole, is actually like only effective in about 38 of cases for blastocystis. So for me, that's quite mind-blowing that that is option A for a lot of people if they are working with a doctor who is of the sort of treatment decision. But it's just it's such a low effectiveness mm. and it's going to, you know, very likely cause this bomb effect and wipe out any robustness or diversity that was left. But for me it just doesn't seem smart mm. and um, that, you know, we obviously need to do more work to develop another way of, of if we are going to treat this, then, you know, what's more effective without such negative consequences? Yeah. And then, yeah, when you do delve into the literature and you look at the effectiveness of, say, as we were saying, Saccharomyces boulardii and, and flagell, which is, you know, um, the metrodenizole, they're exactly the same. They're comparable. Mm. Whereas one's going to completely bomb your body, going to put huge amounts of pressure on your methylation system, on your liver, and cause an, um, quite a widespread impact. Whereas taking a, you know, a probiotic or taking some garlic, there's no widespread impact there. It's just building up the body. So, um, yeah, when you look at the stats being comparable, and like you said, like it, it's not a 100% success rate here. We're not dealing with... If this is so incredible, you have to use it. There's so many anomalies. Why would you go with something that is not foolproof and, in fact, is just so detrimental? Yeah, it's fascinating. And the other angle that I um, try and get my patients or my clients to look at is that often if you have had that conversation, so you've had your faecal PCR with the GP and they've you know, told you about the blasto and said to you, it's normal, we're not going to treat it. Um, what they haven't done in most yeah. cases is look at the entire microbiome. So there's been no fecal microbial analysis or complete digestive stool analysis done as a secondary test or with that PCR. So what we're not aware of is how much damage actually exists in that person's microbiome. Now it's always going to be chicken or the egg, like was the damage there which made the patient the, the host, the perfect host for the parasite or has the parasite crowded out 
all the beneficial bacteria or created the, you know, the perfect storm for the bacterial overgrowth. And this is the conversation that's being left out of the Western treatment model, which really upsets me because rarely, I don't think ever, do I see someone with a parasite that's got all their lactobacilli and bifidobacteria and, you know, everything's looking pretty good. Like it's just the opposite of that, unfortunately. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And the fact that it's been left for so long. Because mm-hmm. obviously these things take time to shift and change unless it's an extremely acute, you know, onset where it's really difficult to manage. But no, it's not because if you had someone uh, come in and they've got a huge diversity and there's richness to their um, gut bacteria, they'll be, able to, they'll be able to survive probably quite fine with blasto. The body would work it out. The different pH levels levels within the digestive tract would deal with the blasto, it would crowd it out and eventually those beautiful gut bacteria would sort of win, <laughs> win the race or win the war. But you know, like you said, Seth, if we can't see that and we don't know what's happening and this person is having symptoms that are quite um, debilitating to them, it needs to be treated. I get very concerned when a doctor says, we don't need to treat this, but the person's standing there saying, but, but I have di- diarrhoea 10 times a day and I've suddenly got anxiety and, gosh, the pain's really chronic now and I'm really exhausted and fatigued. So um, that's when you must question, well, maybe I do need to treat this because these symptoms and these feelings weren't there beforehand. And so that's, you know, that real ownership of I'm not going to accept that, what I'm feeling is normal as opposed to, yes, it's common, but is it normal to have like being exhausted to get up in the morning and having to rush to the toilet if you've eaten something when you've gone out for dinner? All those kinds of things that then just become normal for people and it's um, it's just not, it's not okay. It needs to be looked at. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Like there are doctors that their sort of argument, for want of a better word, is that you're not symptomatic, so there's no reason to treat that. Just, just because that person doesn't happen to have diarrhea in this one situation doesn't mean that they're asymptomatic. Like I think that's looking at things far too insular when we can have symptoms like anxiety or fatigue or inflammation like joint pain or whatever it might look like in the individual, which is usually their Achilles heel in terms of how it manifests in their individual case. Yeah, yeah we, we, we've heard of, you know, barley belly and running to the toilet 10 times a day, but that's just not the only symptom. So you know, unless there's someone that's got zero symptoms, which I'd love to meet that person, um, you know, how do we then tell them that they don't need to treat this? <laughs> how do we tell them that they don't need to treat the parasite yeah. because they're, they're asymptomatic? Like it's really unfortunate that we, we forget about the systemic nature of the gut when we, when we do know now, um, you know, we're just the host. We're this tiny little drop in the ocean carrying these trillions of bacteria around all day every day and our symptoms aren't just going to be digestive if we've got an imbalance or dysbiosis or leaky gut or a combination of the above yeah yeah and uh, you know we know that these pathogens love to travel around the body so we're not just going to see it in the gut anyway with those gut symptoms Mm. and so it's you know and all of the metabolites and the different kinds of toxins that they produce and the impacts it's um i i can't i i can't even count how many people have come through culture wellness that 
um, the number one issue is anxiety mm. and mental health issues. And when we drill down, it's, it's actually coming from parasitic infections and from the parasites, but they came to us because of having mental health issues. And it's like, well, actually, the problem is not your mental health. It's actually um, dysbiosis. It's a change in your microbiome that's causing this. So, um, yeah, it's, we've just got to keep starting that and continuing that conversation around uh, investigating it further and really finding out what the root cause is. Yeah, amazing. We've kind of discussed on some of the um, the treatments and the definitely the cons of a more Western treatment in what those triple therapy or broad spectrum antibiotics can do to the gut. But I just had one final thought about like timelines. So do you think there are some people that prefer more Western treatment because it's perhaps quicker than a, than a natural treatment? And what have you seen in comparison in terms of how long it might take to treat a blasto infection, whether it was natural or more Western? Yeah, yeah. So what I've seen, which is really interesting, is um, those who prefer the, the quick fix, which is, um, and I know that's very general, um, and there are some people who have such significant parasitic infections that it is really significantly impacting on their life and they do take the antibiotics. Um, but those who want to take the antibiotics to get that quick fix, it actually ends up taking longer for them to recover from the blasto because of, yes, they may have got rid of the blasto, but then they have to deal with the fallout of um, basically cutting the grass or getting rid of that bacteria within our microbiome and then there is nothing there to support their um, digestive system, to support their um, assimilating their nutrients, to support everything that that gut microbiome does. Whereas when you do a more natural approach of, say, like what we do at Culture Wellness with our herbs, taking the parasite herbs, you might have to take uh, do one, two, three cleanses. So it might take you maybe two or three months, but the process of doing it means that you're not annihilating um, what is currently there and you're building on it through the process of, you know, obviously re-establishing that gut microbiome. So it ends up often taking less time because the outcome is that you, you still have that beautiful beneficial gut bacteria. So you do come back with energy. You come back with... Um, you know, an immune system that has been supported with all that nutrients and you've got, you, you're ready to go. Whereas I find, yeah, the, the initial stage of taking the antibiotics might clear up the diarrhea or all those acute symptoms, but yeah, the fallout can go on for months and years. So it does, I have seen, it does, it is quicker to do the natural method, even though you're taking herbs or probiotics, or sticking to a specific diet for longer, it's nothing like what we're seeing with people coming in 15 years later, still dealing with the fallout of taking triple therapy antibiotics. Yeah, wow. So final question then, what about if there, there's an antibiotic like a paramomycin that's absorbed in the small intestine that is supposed to leave the majority of the microbial activity in the large intestine unchanged? Is that something that you would consider as a sort of, I guess, a Western intervention? Definitely consider it. And um, it's certainly more beneficial 
our body still has to process that mm. and our liver has to process that. It's foreign to our bodies. It doesn't work synergistically with our body like herbs do. Um, and so my question around that is, okay, well, uh, do you have any methylation consequences or, you know, have you got some, uh, you know, a slow-functioning liver that might not be able to process those antibiotics? And if so, then you might end up feeling... You know, still worse from that, but from a perspective of processing those um, pharmaceutical drugs. I think it's a better option, absolutely. And I think it's great in a situation where someone is just suffering from extreme symptoms. Then I, I love Western medicine for those um, situations. But once again, um, plants and herbs. The body knows what to do with them. We do work in synergy with them. So they're always going to be our best port of call. Yeah, I do love that angle. I just love the stats on paramomycin in, compa- in comparison to flagell. I think, you know, obviously there's some real limitations oh. in accessing it in Australia, which is half the issue because um, it's not on the PBS. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I can't wait for those statistics to be used um, and I guess shared with the first line practitioners because if a lot of those barriers were removed to accessing paramomycin, we wouldn't see people being given the triple therapies or the broad spectrums, which are the most damaging, of course. Yeah, and and then and, um, as, you know, Stefan, you know, our job is to encourage people to really um, take control of their own health and be responsible for their own health. If you had a blasto infection, and you went in and had your fecal PCR and you, you found out with your doctor, okay, I've got this, and, you're, and you did have access to that paramycin, then because you've taken responsibility for your health and you know how your body best functions, there is such beauty in talking with your doctor and saying, look, I'm quite concerned how my liver will respond to these antibiotics. I'm going to go and talk to my naturopath about going on some liver herbs. Mm. I'm going to take some vitamin C, I'm going to um, have some glutathione, I'm going to do, and whilst I'm having these antibiotics, I'm going to do everything I can to support my microbiome, support my liver, I'm going to reduce the stress in my life and I'm going to make this, you know, a really important time where I look at the whole function of my body to best recover from this. And that's when you get this beauty of the combination between western medicine and a traditional approach and it can it can be done and they're incredible functional and integrative doctors now that that really get that delicate dance perfect and you know and for me with you know my my health and my son's health we you know we work with great doctors that get that dance right okay we know how your body works we know what it needs uh, we might, might need to tweak it with a bit something from a western approach but we can cope with it because we know so much about our bodies now and we take responsibility for that and we own it. And that's a beautiful space to be now with so much information out there. Yeah, I totally agree. The delicate dance, that's an awesome way to look at it. So let's move on slightly, still on our favourite topic of gut health, but Dave has another really great question about the significance of dental or oral hygiene for digestive health. So let's go there. Mm. Yeah, so 
I have heard, and I wish I could remember who coined this stuff. You might be able to help me with it, but the your mouth microbiome is the window into your health. Like a lot of people talk about um, what your mouth tells you and your dental health is has such a overarching impact at looking at how is the rest of the body. And um, so I, I just think that if we're looking at our body as a whole and how well it's working, the mouth is such a great place to start. So we know that if you've got a swollen tongue, if it's red, if you've got like that white film on it, if you've got ulcers, um, if you've got the mega sugar cravings, a, a lot of saliva, all of that stuff going on in your mouth, there is a direct correlation between that and that what's going on within your gut microbiome. So that healthy mouth, <laughs> healthy gut, it's bi- bi-directional, goes both ways. Mm. Um, streptococcus, for example, you know, we have um, strep bacteria, streptococcus bacteria that's within our mouth and obviously within our throat and our tonsils. And when we swallow it, it then moves down and inoculates within our gut. And so obviously that's really detrimental to our gut microbiome and can cause all sorts of changes and shifts, but it's actually happening from the mouth. And we have a lot of candida that happens and that can overgrow within our mouth. And then obviously that has huge impacts on what happens within our gut microbiome. So we can see that um, this shift and this change and of even if we've got acid building up within our gut or a lack of acid, that then um, has impacts on what's going on within our mouth microbiome. So there's actually awesome research in this area. And I know some of the research about what's going on with the gut microbiome some of it has started from that oral hygiene and that oral care. We know that a lot of the research with regards to biofilms started out in that dental healthcare space is that we have a lot of biofilms within our mouth. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it is a big window and it's something that like, you know, for me, for example, I do a lot of that, you know, tongue scraping. I do a lot of coconut oil pulling. Um, I do peroxide mouth washes a lot and then obviously eating fermented foods and having lots of bitter foods having bitter herbs they create this environment in your mouth that um is conducive to great you know gut microbiome and oral health um but also it dictates what we crave so if you've got an overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria in our mouth, guess what we're going to be craving? <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's not like broccoli, like bitter foods, that's for sure. Mm. So, you know, you also get that sort of from that cephalic phase in our brain, we get that message when, you know, we're thinking about eating foods and taste buds, that whole process of gearing up to eat is going to have this really disjointed you know, impact of what we know we should be eating, which is the broccoli and the rocket and the bitter foods and vegetables, as opposed to what our mouth microbiome is telling us, which is just get into those donuts ASAP. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, if we see someone with cavities, periodontal disease, a lot of that oral sort of stuff going on, 
Like if that's you and you've had, um, you know, significant dental health, uh, or sorry, significant dental work done, you really have to look at your gut and vice versa. But also another can of worms, which we may or may not open right now, is if you did have that dental work, what did they put in your mouth? And did the infection get cleared to start with? And, um, you know, because... I have a lot of clients that had dental work and have never been the same since. And when they've had gone to see a holistic dentist and had the mercury amalgams taken out, they found huge infections sitting mm. in there because they, the infections weren't cleared and the, the, my, the oral microbiome wasn't, um, you know, changed and wasn't a beneficial one. And then they just stuck an amalgam over the top. So it just festered and created this horrible toxic environment. Wow. Yeah, it really is never-ending. I, I love that we're really paying more attention to our oral hygiene, especially considering the, the biofilm nature. You know, we know we've discussed the benefits of coconut oil pulling before. Um, it just reminded me. So, you know, when you wake up in the morning, that feeling when you've got, you know, whether it's a funny taste in your mouth or you're conscious of having like a little bit of bad breath or you feel like you really need to brush your teeth, what would happen if you took a big glass of water and swallowed what was ever in your mouth before like pulling or brushing your teeth? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So that, you know, obviously when we wake up in the morning, because we have it, um, there's a certain acid and pH in our mouth that if you take, and that creates an environment that will either grow beneficial pathogens or it will obviously grow, um, you know, pathogenic bacteria so if you swallow that it's going to go it's like that strep we were talking about inoculating in your gut it's going to go straight through and inoculate in your gut and then it just will grow <laughs> these guys multiply so quickly and if you feed so you do that so you wake up Steph and you've got that happening in your mouth you swallow your glass of water like you're supposed to because that's what you think is you're supposed to do in the mornings and then you go and have a breakfast that has sugar in it and I mean even natural sugars, that's just going to then feed that overgrowth that's happening. And, you know, there's that vicious cycle that just starts from, from you know, the get-go. So waking up in the morning and doing that um, oil pulling and clearing out any of that pathogenic bacteria, really it, it is such a huge impact on your health. Um, yeah, I can't believe people that we've worked with and we've tried and tried and tried and we've got test results back and found streptococcus that's inoculated in their gut which mainly or mostly comes from mouth nasal passages obviously through your tonsils and your throat and you deal with that and then you know the these people just come along leaps and bounds mm. it changes enormous. and we we use things like xylitol nasal sprays and gargling xylitol and obviously the peroxide washes and coconut oil it's all good fun <laughs> Oh, good fun. No, I love that because there's so many people that you see with a streptococcus overgrowth, or I do anyway, um, and I feel like, you know, maybe five years ago coconut pulling was like super vogue and um, a lot of people got into it, but it doesn't seem to be a behaviour that sticks in a lot of people. So I think when we can think about mm. it for another reason, like I didn't just see it on Instagram, let me understand more about what this investment of time might actually do to my health. And 
for a lot of people that's the buy-in that they need to finally establish that behavior I'm not saying I do it every day but I'm obsessed with brushing my teeth first thing whether that's good or bad I can't have a glass of water until I've brushed my teeth um and coconut pulling is uh on the list but we'll all get there (laughs) yeah and I, once you, once you know about it, it becomes your daily, well, not daily, but it becomes your routine. I can tell you that if I have eaten something that's not either on my normal diet or I've um, changed something up or I've been traveling or whatever, the next morning when I wake up, I can, I can tell a change in my mouth. Mm-hmm. And they're the mornings that it's an absolute necessity to get into your coconut oil pulling and, um, you know, your tongue scraping and those sorts of things. So, you know, it's also a tool you have in your toolkit. So if, even if you don't do it every day, you know that, you know what, last night I had an extra bit of this or I had, a, you know, a bit, bit more fruit than I normally would or whatever it might be. And, and then you know that you can bring that back into balance the next morning because you've got these beautiful tools that you know what to do and how to make bring that balance back in again. Yeah, I love it. That's a really great way to look at things. So awesome conversation. I love that topic of, of gut health. And, yeah, I think we could all do a little bit more for our oral hygiene. So let's set some goals there to, um, to make it a priority. So moving on. No, go on. I'm going to have to discuss the big fat elephant in the room. You know I'm going to have to discuss it. If you are pashing someone that has poor oral hygiene, mm. then that's, that's something that you need to discuss with them or you need to look at because, you know, I, I wish I could remember the stats, but when, when we exchange saliva with someone, the amount of bacteria that is exchanged is enormous. And I will never forget a beautiful client of mine who had done such a great job on our program and she had actually gone and had some um, dental work done to take out the amalgams and to get rid of the infections that were in there and she, she, it was really big. And then she started seeing this guy and she said, I think I'm allergic to him because... I wake up the next day or when I've seen him or whatever and I just feel so flat and sick and mm. I feel my old, my old symptoms coming back. And I remember saying to her, well, maybe you need to get him to have a look at his, his mouth and his gut microbiome. Maybe you guys are, he's sharing something with you that you finally balanced. And, and so get your partners involved because you don't want to be sharing pathogenic bacteria between each other. So <laughs> it's, it's really important. That you don't it, become, as she said, allergic to her partner. <laughs> oh, I know. I bet it was a massive relief for her to consider it from that angle because, you know, she's probably having a great time with this new guy thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to stop seeing him because I'm literally allergic. <laughs> yeah, she's totally. totally she's I'm like, oh, for goodness sakes, just like just coconut oil pool together in the mornings. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. But, exactly. Um, yeah, these things do... It, it is, that's what it is. Well, you know, we share this stuff. So we've got to be mindful of that. I mean, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, you, you are the person that you hang out with and mm-hmm. be around people that make you amazing and all that kind of stuff. And it's a bit like bacteria, hang out with people that have got great bacteria and um, you'll notice the difference, that's for sure. 
<laughs> yeah, awesome. No, it's a really good lens to look at it through. And I think a lot of people are going to be sharing this podcast with their partner as a result because you don't want to do all the work and get reinfected or, you know, not have the progression because there's a few roadblocks on the way. Yeah, totally. totally. Love it. So good. All right, we've got a very interesting question from Megan. So Megan's question is, are sacrolitis, so I don't even know if I'm saying that right, sacrolitis and spondylitis influenced or affected by gut health? Will a healthy gut affect my mobility? Go on. Uh, Or primarily, yeah, my attitude to dealing with the pain. So, Mm. yes, um, there... Megan, this is really exciting for you because there is actually some incredible research around this. So, of course, we know that the gut impacts so much of our health. We know that it impacts um, people who affect who have chronic pain. We know that the, you know it has far-reaching impacts. But now there is some incredible actual research. You know, there was a paper um, and some research presented in 2017 and it was a really promising study on the impact of the gut on the spine and so that relationship between that sacrolitis and gut health and that paper found that patients with their ankylizing spondylitis they had a much much higher frequency of gut inflammation inflammatory bowel conditions um, and I think it was up to about 60 percent of gut inflammation in people with AS, so the um, ankylizing spondylitis, which is massive. That is, you know, a scientific correlation there. And there's been other research about um, the colonisation of Klebsiella. And Klebsiella Mm. is extremely acid-forming. And, of course, we know that pain, especially in the gut, uh, sorry, the spine, is um, correlated to, you know, acid within the body. Now, that's not, you know, am I on an alkaline diet or an acidic diet? It's not that simplistic, so I don't want people to, <laughs> to think that and start going and having celery juices. It's, it's much more complex than that. But when you have um, changes in the gut and you have a colonisation of things like Klebsiella that release acidic toxins they build up in the spine or in your knees or in your joints or different parts of the body and they will cause a significant amount of pain and that pain gets to the point that then when you go off to the doctor and you say, I've got this pain, then it's like, okay, well, you've got, you know, arthritis or spondylitis or those sorts of things. But as we know now, we can drill further down and we can have a look at, okay, what pathogen is releasing those toxins that's causing that pain. And let's not look at having um, steroids or having, you know, drugs that maybe block the pain. Let's look at the cause and address the imbalance that's happening within the gut and getting an overall change within the body and the function of the body. And then we can start to find that balance and that health rather than well, let's put a band-aid of steroids and let's give you a diagnosis of an autoimmune condition, but what does that really mean? And that's why I think this is so exciting, Megan, because we do have these research papers now and one as recent as 2017 saying that it, there is a direct correlation. There is definitely an association of 
um, those symptoms and gut inflammation. So it's pretty exciting. I think it's so exciting and I think quite mind-blowing for a lot of people because, you know, the treatment for a lot of these autoimmune diseases have has been unfortunately pharmaceutical and I appreciate that, you know, modern, modern medicine has its place, but these bacteria are actually doing the whole molecular mimicry. You know, we hear about that with gluten and how it attacks the thyroid in a, in a Hashimoto's kind of situation, um, but it's quite similar in the more arthritic-type inflammatory conditions where the, you know, the microbes are really having this systemic impact on our pathology. And, and you probably saw that in, in Noah with his microbiome um, and the initial sort of diagnoses that he was given. Um, and, you know, we see it with so many other examples. And I think that's why we've really got to look deeper than just the symptom or the top line kind of diagnosis, having a look at the microbiome and what imbalances are there and what the research shows that can manifest as is, yeah, as you say, so exciting. That's where we're going now with treatment. Yeah. And it is, and it is really exciting because then we get back to that delicate dance. You find an incredible practitioner that you can work with that um, can sit in that space of supporting about getting, um, managing the acute symptoms because we're talking about really acute um, conditions here. And then as you get that under control, then getting on to investigating the deep, deep symptoms. And, you know, we have tests now and we have access to these things, which is so exciting. And then slowly but surely as dietary changes happen, as we build that microbiome and as we start to um, look at lifestyle choices and all those kinds of things that may have been the reason why, um, you know, these um, different types of conditions started, then you can come off that medication and move on to managing it with, um, you know, some wonderful natural ways of managing it. Mm, yeah, it's amazing. I think it's, yeah, it's where we're going with more modern research and I think it would be just mind-blowing for a lot of people who, especially when they have these conditions, like there's other examples of um you know, um, reactive arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, um, arthritis, like it's just huge in terms of the list of these conditions that have a link back to a microbial imbalance. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, I just find it really cool because I, yeah. I, you know, the more research that we have, the, um, you know, the more we, we're able to help more people get that um, information to as you said the front line so it, it's out to everybody and yeah. I think that's very very important I think it's important to say as well that it's difficult for um, research studies in these sorts of areas to get a leg up because who's going to back that where is that money coming from um, you know, a lot of the research into a lot of our modern medical conditions, unfortunately, is sponsored by um, either pharmaceutical companies or is sponsored by um, companies that don't have the interest of using um, traditional medicine. So it, it's been difficult up until now. And now we're seeing incredible beneficiaries. We're seeing universities understanding the importance of allocating their funding resources to uh, looking at more natural ways. The gut it has become this big 
incredible sort of <laughs> beast of its own and people want to throw money into researching that. So it, it is an exciting time that um, researchers are now looking beyond just being sponsored by possibly the tablet that the person's going to take from the research. So, um, yeah, that's very exciting. So if anyone's got a fair couple of million out there, can you just uh, send it through to local... <laughs> local research areas and PhD students. That would be wonderful. Oh, I know. I know. (laughs) But times are changing, which is awesome. And people are becoming a lot more savvy and understanding, you know, looking at perhaps who the research is funded by before we get too carried away and what the results have to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Mm. Awesome. So two final questions. Um, Claire has a question about inflammation. She wants to know more about the symptoms um, her personal experience is some soreness on the right-hand side of her lower back after a hike. It, come, it, came, it came on and off and never completely goes away, she says. I'm wondering if this is inflammation. Okay. So, hmm. I mean, any soreness, any pain um, is, you know, our, our body's response is to create an inflammatory environment so we can protect ourselves to be able to deal with it. So... Yes, definitely. If you're finding that you've got pain, then you've definitely got inflammation. Um, I, Claire, I feel your pain because I, have, I love hiking. I go on lots and lots of big, crazy hikes and I have netball knees. Now, anyone who plays netball, you would know what netball knees are. And so I get that um, sort of a little bit of inflamed knees where there might be some scar tissue or things are worn out and worn down. Um, but the inflammation can be modulated by such incredible things like, you know, turmeric and even, um, you know, good quality fats. Those fats help us to um, support that inflammatory response and also um, reducing our stress. Now, even though when we know we're on a hike and that's great, it's still stressful in our body. So even reducing that stress is very important. But if it hasn't gone away, then the body needs more resources to be able to cool down that inflammation. And so that would be what I've just discussed with some of those extra anti-inflammatory types of foods, you know, and then you can also have things like quercetin, um, obviously adding in more of those probiotics, but also looking at um, getting your gut tested because there may be an imbalance there that um, hasn't been fully dealt with. And then we, like we were talking about with that Klebsiella, having those sort of um, those toxic uh, metabolites that can cause that inflammation as well. Yeah, for sure. I think looking at the symptom, and that just might be your Achilles heel, Claire, so to speak, that's how your body kind of speaks to you in in, um, telling you more about an underlying symptom or that part of the iceberg that sits under the water. Um, and I think it's great that we get these signals. Like I get one, a really random rash on the inside of my left elbow. Um, it's always in a very similar spot. I can see very faint um, remnants of like previous rashes from years. And whenever it pops up, I know I've accidentally been gluten. So I think about when I last ate out and, you know, where that gluten um, was or potentially was and, and how that impacts me. And, you know, I think it's really great that our body gives us these signals it actually speaks loud and clear we just need to know how to listen yeah and totally and once again like we were talking about tools and your toolkit you know with the coconut oil pulling it's Mm. the same thing we 
all, well, not all of us, there are some super lucky people out there <laughs> who have been able to grow up with parents that maybe, you know, started whole foods diet and microbiome diet right from the get-go. <laughs> but unfortunately not most, not me. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Steph, you and I know way. Mm. Um, but so we do have these injuries and we have these things in our bodies. I mean, and if any of you have played sport or had accidents or whatever, we've got these part things in our bodies that, give us those little warning signs and I I think it's wonderful because it is like okay am I not sleeping enough have I been looking at screens too much why is this inflammation getting out of hand what have I eaten what have I what have I not done to make sure that my body feels safe and that my body doesn't need to be stressed and and put this big sort of um bubble around me which is that inflammation so it can protect it so it's um, your body trying to protect you, but it's um, yeah. I would I would keep on investigating if it comes up time and time again. Yeah, awesome. I love that. Definitely do some further testing. So great advice. Lucky last question is around um, the an AIP diet from Tessa. So she wants to know more about mm-hmm. an autoimmune protocol for Hashimoto's. Um, she's interested in both. What would be a the elimination phase and ongoing. Yeah. So an auto AIP autoimmune paleo diet is basically um, a paleo diet. So it gets rid of, you know, grains and um, obviously processed foods, dairy, um, and reduces all of, um, you know, Western foods. But it also takes out some of those common foods that, create um, that have those big protein molecules in them so even on an AIP they take out eggs and dairy uh, which you'll see in a paleo diet so it's really giving the body a chance to rest and not have uh, a spark of that inflammatory response comes back to that understanding of if our gut is compromised and we have a leaky gut, for example, or, um, you know, obviously we always describe it as that mesh. Seth, I'm doing the hands. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I I can't help it. Yeah. (laughs) It's like this little fly. Yeah, I know. I know. (gasps) But it's like this fly screen, right? And fly screen has to be, um, you know, a a very, very minute sort of fly screen where nothing can get through. And with a leaky gut, it's quite exposed. It's quite open. There's holes in there. And large protein molecules can leak through there. And even in beautiful foods, beautiful nourishing foods like eggs, for example, or nuts and seeds, um, we see that people who've got those a compromised gut where there's those holes, those big protein molecules can go through and can alarm or alert the immune system. So the autoimmune, you know, um, paleo diet is basically minimising those big protein molecules so it doesn't alert the immune system. And things like Hashimoto's, when you sort of delve on down and, um, you know, go down the rabbit hole, um, it's certainly looking, you know, we would look at, okay, what are, well, sorry, what is going on in the gut that is sparking or leaking or causing that inflammatory response that then is impacting 
the thyroid. Mm-hmm. And so uh, many, many discussions around that. For example, when our gut is compromised, we don't assimilate and digest nutrients. Nutrients for our thyroid like selenium or iodine or, you know, those essential fatty acids that we need, zinc, all of those kinds of things. So if we can't assimilate that, we can't um, allow our body the best, you know, opportunity to have that nutrients, then our thyroid is going to be compromised. And then we are going to see this, you know, huge changes in how that part of our body functions. And then the fallout of that is obviously the symptoms of Hashimoto's, which can be, you know, overactive, underactive, a swing between the two. But um, there is definitely um, evidence uh, anecdotal evidence about that AIP being impacting on Hashimoto's. There are, there's definitely a lot of anecdotal evidence around um, people going on AIP diets and seeing marked improvements in their conditions, some people going off their medications. Um, so it's just something that we haven't seen a lot of research in, but... Um, Terry Wells, for example, has done a lot of research in, you know, that AIP sort of space, but not in Hashis or thyroids, but she has seen significant um, changes in people's autoimmune conditions. She specifically is in MS, but also in people's, um, you know, fatigue and, um, you know, inflammatory conditions around that AIP. So... Um, I think it's amazing. I've um, spent, you know, had to use it myself and had such significant impact on how it's helped me. So, yeah, I, 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 as long as you are keeping in the diversity of the vegetables, as long as you're adding those good quality fats, beautiful amounts of proteins, and you're focusing on ensuring that you're getting all those macro micronutrients, it's a beautiful diet absolutely beautiful yeah and i i just wanted to add i don't know how you approach it when you're working with someone but for, for hashimoto's when we look at the you know the impact that gluten has from that cellular mimicry point of view right the molecule the protein molecule in gluten gliadin looks a lot like the thyroid so the theory is is that when you eat gluten and your body's digesting it, it can actually also self-destruct the thyroid. So I personally always start with gluten. If I've got a client coming to see me that's not yet gluten-free, then that's our first priority to start to look at the natural treatment for Hashimoto's, which is part of the AIP. For me personally, yeah. it really depends on the individual. Like I don't want to sound negative, but AIP is not an easy diet to cut out gluten, refined sugar, dairy, nuts, seeds, nightshades, you know, like obviously we have to be in the right position to be able to do it really well. So what I wanted to kind of clarify is that maybe you do it step change, you know, maybe you start with gluten and then look at the dairy and then cut out eggs. Like you don't have to do it all at once because there are a lot of people that can be really overwhelming. And if there's no compliance there, then it's obviously not going to achieve the desired result. Yeah. So, yeah. But some people like to dive in the deep end. Absolutely. And, and the other thing is I just... Go on. <laughs> yeah. And, and that is dependent on, you know, how much pain you're in and what's mm. going on. Because for some people, like, you know, I had I spent a lot of time in this sort of space. I was just so sick and couldn't digest anything and just felt so crap. It didn't really matter. Yeah. Um, 
I just needed to get some respite from what was going on. For sure. But yeah, absolutely. Step by step and work with someone that can support you and help you and, and guide you through and, and understand what you're going through because this is not thing, this is not something you can do alone. You really need support. Um, but it's become more and more apparent to me how important that is as I have been through it myself and work with so many people. Um, you, yeah, you can't just wake up one day and go, I'm going to do this. You need a community around you and a, and someone around you to, to to get you back. You know, someone who's got you. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's the same for ongoing. Like it's supposed to be a protocol that you do to get symptom resolution. And whilst I'd never suggest that someone brings gluten back in, I think for a lot of people, um, they're really ready to start to test some of these paleo-based foods and. They don't really know how to do that. Now, there are different protocols that you could follow, but as a nutritionist, like I like to make this, um, you know, as as doable for the client. So we'll have a discussion around, all right, what's the food that you're missing the most? Like if we were to add X back in and that would make your real food lifestyle more manageable and enjoyable and cost-effective and sustainable, what would that be? And they might say, I'd really love to have eggs. So, you know, that's what we'd start with. But it is really important that you introduce foods one at a time and at least 72 hours apart because reactions in some people can take time to appear. So if you added eggs on day one and then almonds on day two, you might not get a reaction at all, but you might get one on day four. And then how would you know what the food trigger still was? So again, working with a practitioner who can help you design that, reintroduction phase and and you know it's not black and white it's going to be very individual and I think that's important to acknowledge Mm. in in every unique circumstance yeah and also um I I had such bad reactions to food that I was actually scared of food Mm. and reintroducing it so I got to the point where my body was ready for the food I had the gut bugs for it I repaired my gut but my, I was still too scared to eat it. So I was then causing almost like a mental reaction to mm. the food. Psychosomatic, yeah. Yeah, totally. And because I didn't have someone saying, you know what, Kirst, like you've got this, here are the test results. We know that this is fine. It's just that in the past you've had this food and you've been out at a restaurant and you had to run to the toilet and spend the rest of the time on the toilet. Mm. And it's embarrassing. That's not, that's not what's going to happen now. And we know, and it's going to be fine. And I, I really feel for people um, because that is really hard to retrain your brain to feel safe and secure eating a food that's caused significant amounts of pain, embarrassment, frustration, whatever it may be, um, and, and to move through that. And you need, you need to have someone with you along the way. Yeah, for sure. I love it. Such incredible information. I've loved our Q&A episode. Um, please do keep sending your questions in to um, myself by The Natural Nutritionist so we can get Kirsty to continue to share her knowledge with us. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Kirsty. thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Steph. Absolute pleasure. We'll have you on again soon. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? 
I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.